proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the reformed confessions of the faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The confessional collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. I am your host, Zach Fisher, along with my two other hosts, Chris Santola and Aaron Carr. What's up, guys? Hey, what's going on, man? How you guys doing? Pretty good. Living so, the dream. So I got a, I got something I want to start with today. Uh, I was uh, on my feed. Up comes a video that happened apparently back in January in New Jersey. Apparently, this uh, bishop gets punched in the face right in the middle of his homily by a uh, what is written, at least in the article, appears to be a pimp. And blood splatters the cross, they say. And you hear the whole crowd, all 100 of them, screaming like bloody murder. The cops are on the scene. Did you guys see that video? I did. And I, I, I didn't. Did. You sent it to our, you know, you texted us and I saw it pop up and I was in the, I was driving or something. I didn't get a chance to watch it until just a little bit ago. And it's pretty crazy. Pretty intense. You, you had someone pass out a couple Sundays ago, but this, I think, tops that. For sure. For sure. This is worse. <laughs> and I was blown away. That, like, the cops were there, like, on the spot. So is this, like, staged? Does, uh, does the church there, the Catholic church, have uh, regular armed guards uh, just in case of riots and other types of things? Or, I mean, or is the church, if I was a church member there, am I, and I'm watching this happen, am I more upset that my priest or bishop was punched in the face or am i more upset that he had dealings with a pimp somehow that i don't know about <laughs> that's because the, that's yeah. the bigger what, question what's the worst news there <laughs> the right. fact that you know <laughs> something went down behind the scenes that we don't know about or the fact that he's been punched a good call zach good call yeah, yeah. it's just really bizarre and it's like you're watching this thing and it's just going down it's like a train wreck and and just the people's confusion and and so if you have not seen it, I highly recommend you Google it because uh, it is probably one of the best things you'll see this year. If you, yeah, it's violent. So just, <laughs> if, you, if you love violence like Aaron, watch it. <laughs> I mean, th this, this guy's just walking up the aisle and just right smacks the pit. It, it, and the bishop just keeps going until really, he really, smacks the floor. It was like really slow. Like he got like two feet away from him and then all of a sudden just went for it. I'm like... <laughs> How do you not see that coming? This dude is just walking up really slowly. You know, I'm really encouraged. It. Oh, I'm really encouraged that obviously this this uh, this bishop, right? He's he's uh, he's. It must just be normal to have people walking down the aisle, yeah. and it didn't seem to phase him until he got jabbed in the face. So. I don't know. I would have been a little bit scared as soon as somebody stands up and you know starts walking. Presbyterians, we don't like much movement, right? So we get yeah, would have, that would have tipped you off right away. Oh yeah, <laughs> somebody moved or breathed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you yeah, there's definitely better. definitely leaves a lot of questions looming in the air. <laughs> it sure does. Yeah, people Woo. are confused. So anyway, that was the highlight of my week. Just seeing that video. <laughs> Anybody else? Anything good? Yeah, something uh, less violent and catastrophic was we wrapped up our um, Romans study in, in my Sunday school class, which was pretty cool. And so we, fin we finished actually two weeks ago, like going through the book. And so last week we did a review, and I, I didn't even bring notes. I just had people, I, I wanted it to be more like interactive, and I just said, 
I wrote one through 16 on the board and I wanted everyone to give me one or two main takeaways from each chapter and tie it all into the thesis, which is that the righteous shall live by faith. And the class pretty much filled up the board. I didn't really have to help them too much. So that was encouraging it just to know that at least something stuck and resonated with most people in there. So it was cool. I mean, it's a, it's, it can be a tough age group, you know, college age people are like 18 to 25. So sometimes they're not there regularly, but even the people that are, th- that were there that day, that are only usually there sporadically had something to, to say. And it was, it was pretty much on point. So it was super encouraging as a teacher to see that. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. That's awesome. Chris, what about you? Oh, not a whole lot. Just, uh, looking to the future, pondering kind of how things are going and, uh, just continuing to look forward to see, uh, kind of just see what the Lord's up to with me and my family and all of that kind of thing. So is, it's, is, uh, it's been is a Michigan in your future or what? <laughs> you got you got me curious now hey you never know i i hear there's some cool cats out there so uh, there are there are there are they're cold cats but they're here and they're, they're cool they're cool cats because they're cold there you go cool cats 48 degrees today boys 48 degrees in may just oh loving my. it so come on over from the desert brother <laughs> it might happen you never know Come out of her, my people. (laughs) Quit wandering in the wilderness there, Chris. It literally is. It is the Mojave (laughs) Desert. It it is a wilderness land. Well, we got some cool stuff to talk about today. I was actually really excited about um, our topic. Our topic is the doctrine of sanctification. Um, And uh, obviously this is an important doctrine, one that oftentimes is missed, um, especially when um, one focuses kind of too far over in the idea of license and Mm -hmm. freedom and misses the call for holiness and uh, the pursuit of that. Uh, Presbyterians, we love to talk about the third use of the law and uh, in the role of that. Um, So there's a lot to talk about, a lot to digest today, so hopefully this will be a blessing to the listeners. I know that I've been really excited about the topic But I'm going to start today's discussion with the uh, Shorter Catechism question 35 from the Westminster. It says, what is sanctification? And the answer reads this way, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And I just think that is such a uh, succinct uh, explanation of this particular doctrine. Obviously, the the work of God, and it is of His free grace that He works in us. Um, the idea of renewing that happens, and it the description that it's in the whole man, not just His heart, not just His mind, but the whole man is being renewed in the image of God. Back to um, the uh, actually better than the original state because now we're we're clothed in Christ um, and the benefits of Christ there, but uh, we're enabled more and more to die unto sin. Uh, the famous John Owen quote, right? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, and the ability now not just to to uh, see sin defeated, but actually living unto righteousness. The actual pursuit of holiness. Uh, popular verse that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you except such as common demand, but God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. Meaning that we can actually have the ability to do the right thing now as a believer. So there's a lot to talk about in this um, particular doctrine, but I'm going to start it off 
just um, with maybe some misconceptions of what people perceive sanctification to mean. So I'm going to let you guys kind of just uh, take us there. Well, I think you kind of already hit on it because you mentioned that it's, it's one, is it's dying to self, and then two, it's living, uh, walking in the Spirit, right? So, so right away, you've got sanctification as one thing, but it's really twofold. And I guess the terms that you know, the reform crowd and uh, people like that would be familiar with would be mortification and vivification. So you've got mortification, which is dying to your flesh every day, and that is a process that's never finished until we're in glory, right? Um, and that's something that the Holy Spirit enables us to do, gives us the desire to do, and gives us the ability to carry out. And then on the other side of that, you've got the the living a holy life and doing holy actions and having holy thoughts and holy desires. And so you really got twofold, right? You've got the mortification, which is the negative side, the putting off the old man. Then you've got the vivification, which is the putting on Christ and walking in the Spirit. Yeah, Colossians is a good uh, book to look at that, at the putting off and the putting on. So that deals with both. Chris, you want to speak to maybe some misconceptions regarding um, sanctification? Yeah, I think one of the bigger misconceptions regarding sanctification is that we tend to muddle it up with moralism. Mm -hmm. I think that it oftentimes is easily confused with moralism because we're talking about transformation. Uh, We're talking about people no longer being who they used to be and growing in their walk with Christ, growing in godliness. But there's a quote that I heard a long time ago. I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but they said, there is a worldly definition of holiness that does not look anything like Jesus, that has nothing to do with Jesus, and don't buy into it. And I think that what they mean by that is that when we use the term culturally holiness, there are certain things that kind of come into our mind's eye, certain certain things we start thinking about of what holiness looks like. Uh, and the I Amish. think just— a, Like the Amish. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, to, to be in some way, like, isolated, or, or we think about, like, uh, some kind of a procession of ministry and people— wearing certain things and, you know, the, kind of the, the glamour and glitter and gold and all of this kind of stuff. And we go, wow, I mean, there, that's, that's really kind of a, a holy person that, uh, that we see, or, or people who perhaps um, hold a particular office. And just because they happen to, to hold a particular office in a church, we go, wow, that is a, a, a holy man, without really <laughs> considering what the definition of that is biblically. Sure. And I mean, the simple biblical definition of it, we can expand upon this a little bit, but I mean, hagiosmos means to be set apart, uh, to, to set apart, to consecrate, or sometimes translated holiness or sanctification. And really what we're talking about is being conformed to the likeness of Christ uh, in a, just a very basic, simple thing. That's what it's about. Now, that starts breaking down and you know into a lot of different stuff but that really is what i think we're trying to get at is that the believer is being made like christ would you say that okay so we've got we've talked about justification before we've mentioned regeneration we, we would definitely agree that those things are monergistic right so those things are an act of god alone upon the person you know and for for regeneration you've got someone who's dead in sin god acts right gives them a new heart now they are alive 
That's a that's a monergistic act. And, and 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 I think we would say that glorification when we see Christ is not something that we participate in. It, it happens to us right in a moment. But we would say sanctification is a process throughout the Christian life. So would you guys say that that is synergistic in the fact that we are cooperating along with God, or do you think that that gets too close to moralism? Or would you say that sanctification is also monergistic and God doing it? Because I've heard people go back and forth, even Reformed people going back and forth on this issue. Yeah, that's a good question. That is a very challenging thing. I tend to look at it as though it is synergistic. Justification is monergistic all the way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but when we start talking about sanctification, I think there is an element of cooperation in that. Um, it is a cooperation that is fueled and enabled by uh, the Holy Spirit doing work in our lives. Uh, but you have passages where we're told, uh, you know, to work out our salvation. And the very next thing it says, for it is God at work in you right. to will and to do both for his good pleasure. And so there's an element of, yes, we are to do these things, but on the other side, that God is the one working and transforming and enabling by the power of the Holy Spirit. Chris, I don't think I'm going to disagree with what you said, but I don't have a problem with calling it monergistic, and here's why. We would say the doctrine of justification is all of the work of God's free grace, Ephesians 2. And clearly we'd say it's not the Father who's repenting, and clearly it's not Jesus who has faith. He is the object of our faith, but it is our repentance and our faith. But we recognize that those are the fruit of a changed heart. Those, those are uh, the gifts or the fruits of grace. Now, I think the same applies to sanctification, that sanctification is all of the work of God. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. So there's truth in that the assurance that we have that we will be glorified is the work of God, that we have been saved, declared righteous uh, through justification. We are being saved in sanctification, and we will be saved. Glorification is all of God's grace. Yet clearly we're called to put off and put on. I think those are the fruit of of the salvation by grace that God gives us. So I guess I could say yes and yes. It's a monergistic reality, but a synergistic experience. I want to go back even further, something that you started off with, which is let's defining the term sanctification. And I, I think it's an important thing to spend a few minutes and looking at that. We we oftentimes look at the idea of sanctification as being set apart, and 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 it is uh, defined that way. But if anybody's read uh, Sinclair Ferguson's new book, Being Devoted to God, he deals with this right in the first chapter, and he says one of the, the, the clear marks of this is the word holy, which means set apart, which is where sanctification comes from, is this idea we have to remember that God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, and God the Holy Spirit is holy. And so we want to be careful with what we uh, let our minds run to when we think of being set apart and distinct and separate, right? And and remember what it really means is that by being uh, set apart or holy, they're set apart into something. That is obviously the glory of God, the the purposes of God. And so it is about being devoted into something, uh, focused on something that I, I don't want our listeners to miss, that sometimes we get this idea, and I think it's one of the 
problem sometimes that comes with with sanctification. Oh, I need to be separate, and you start to move farther and farther and farther away, and ultimately you're missing the point about the direction you're really supposed to be heading, right? Which also lends itself to another problem that is out there, which is the idea of perfectionism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some people think the more separate I get, the more uh, set apart I get, that I can eventually reach perfection in this life. And the Westminster Confession in um, in in this chapter thirteen on sanctification in in the second part actually says this: this sanctification is thorough in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. And the idea that any one of us can pursue it and make ourselves perfect in this life is is wrong and it's flawed and it's and it's scary to think that we begin to separate ourselves more and more and more and more and we're really missing the point that we're called to be devoted wholly to God and pursuing his pleasure and his his glory then and that's really the essence of holiness so I hope what I'm saying makes sense because it, it's just I see how people twist this, and especially coming from the background um, that I did, where it was a fundamentalist background, separatism became yeah. a big part. Three degrees of separation, movement. Well, you don't associate with that dude because that dude associated with somebody else, <laughs> right? And I'm pursuing to be more holy, so therefore, in my pursuit, and it's like it's it's flawed at its very core of what I, what it's about. The, the whole perf- perf- uh, perfectionism view, I mean, maybe I'm not thinking, maybe I just don't see their their point, but I, I don't see how that can stand just even given a face value reading of certain passages. Like, I'm thinking of two passages. One of them would be Romans 7, and you've got Paul as a Christian man, the Apostle Paul, describing his intense battle with his own flesh and his own sin, and he's broken over the fact that he continues to sin, even though he doesn't want to, but he wants to be holy, but he can't because of his flesh. And so you've got a you've got a an apostle Paul, right, set apart, who's still battling sin. So how does that work? Um, and also, you mentioned earlier Ephesians, or not Ephesians, Colossians chapter 3, and uh, verse 5, there's a call to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Well, why do we need a call to put to death something that we don't deal with? You know what I mean? It's funny because the the argument you're making about Romans, the perfectionist people, what they do is they say, well, that's Paul before he's converted, then Paul after he's converted, you know, that's the difference. And, and man, you just want to bang your head against the wall. I would recommend anybody who's dealing with any type of teaching out there on this, on this horrible doctrine of perfectionism, because it, it, it will, it will destroy people inside because you're pursuing something you can never fully achieve in this life. Right. And it becomes very man centered and it becomes very, uh, touch, not taste, not handle, not, um, and and what becomes ultimately destructive, I would recommend to them to pick up B.B. Warfield's book on perfectionism. You talk about a sledgehammer to this bad doctrine, he just knocks the garbage out of it. And I would highly recommend that somebody pick that up and read it if this is something that uh, a church you're at or people you're associated with are pushing on you. So uh, just, uh, you know... Just in light of that, but that's what they do. They they yeah. twist you know that whole passage there in Romans and yeah, and that just wouldn't fit with the flow of the book of Romans anyway. Like that would be totally bizarre to have kind of him building an argument from you know chapter one and all of a sudden in chapter seven he rewinds to before he was 
a Christian, it just it wouldn't make any sense hermeneutically. But that's beside the point. <laughs> you know, on the other side of the coin, I think it'd be good to talk, what does sanctification involve in our lives? Hmm. Because on the one side, you guys are talking Colossians about mm-hmm. there, there's take off and the put on and, you know, that whole thing. And so you've got on the one side, a, a negative side of here are things you are not to do. Uh, if you are going to be walking in Christ-likeness, these are things which would not be becoming a, a follower of Christ. But there's also a positive side. Uh, there are also things which you should be doing that are going to demonstrate Christ-likeness. And so if we're going to be walking in holiness and growing in our sanctification, uh, we need to look at both of those sides and one of the questions that's come up to me before is, well, you know, how does that happen? Because I think a lot of people tend to take the I'm going to pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps kind of approach, and they start becoming extremely unhealthily introspective. And they are so consumed with the various sins in their life that their eyes are no longer even focused on Christ. Their, their eyes are just focused on whatever that is issue is and you know it starts to consume them yeah and i think one the keys to growing in holiness and growing in sanctification is to recognize your sin but to fix your eyes upon the savior right right and i think that's where colossians 2 6 it says even as you received christ the lord so walk in him well how did we receive him we received him by faith in the gospel and I see growth in the Christian life, growth and sanctification, as taking place when our faith in Christ, our belief in the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and who he is for us, begins to displace those areas of unbelief in our life where we've chosen to believe the lie that something is greater. Yeah. And that something else is going to provide us more satisfaction or security or a greater salvation than Christ himself. Christ himself. This is a a very true um, and necessary discussion, because what often happens in the pursuit of holiness is what will happen in typical evangelical world, where you start to pursue piety. And in the pursuit of piety, I go and I spend time in the woods to find myself. Mm-hmm. I take my journal and I'm going to read the Bible. And a lot of times in reading the Bible, I'm reading my story into the Bible. I'm looking for me in the Bible, right? Uh, there is uh, the use of silence and all of these other supposed uh, um, means to ultimately uh, be empowered. And what ultimately happens is... They're discouraged because everyday life can't be like that. Right. And I mean, there's all kinds of books out there. I know that one of the ones that um, I was encouraged to read by somebody was one about a guy named Brother Lawrence and how he was a dishwasher and he tried to live always practicing the presence of God. And I'm not... I'm not dissing anything in the sense of pursuing holiness and a relationship and an intimacy with God. But I think if we're going to be confessional, we need to be truthful that there are certain means, we call them the means of grace, where God has promised to meet us and promised to administer to us and promised to strengthen us and to grow us. 
And when we're all, when we're using all these other supposed means, I'm putting that in quotes right. to to fulfill us and 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 reach us. No wonder we're discouraged. No wonder we're <laughs> we're sidelined. No wonder we're distracted. And 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 because it's become duty, and God hasn't promised to use silence. Now I know people immediately say, "What well, Jesus got away? He did get away. He got away and prayed." Right. Jesus, uh, the word of God was his defense against temptation. I mean, we've got to come back to the means that God has provided for his church and, 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 and make sure that this is where our nourishment and empowerment is coming from, not just in any goofiness that we come up with. Yeah, I think part of that misconception might be because, you know, the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so I think people they're aware of that and, and that part's true. And so they might get off in a corner by themselves and, and pray to God and w- look with inside themselves and say, okay, like speak to me, you know, help me be more holy, help me with this, help me with that. But they fail to realize that a normative way that the Holy Spirit works in sanctification is through the word and illuminating the word and revealing truth to us through that word. And we're sanctified through that, through soaking up the word of God as we meditate on it, as we pray through it. And that's a chief means of sanctification. You can't really do that word without in, it. <laughs> word and sacrament right. is what was what we say. Word and sacrament, and th- going back to what Chris said, because those are founded on keeping us focused in Christ. Right. <laughs> right. And yeah, and exactly. when you take your eyes off of Christ, you're in trouble. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Like He points toward Christ, right? Yes. And so that's one of the things He does. So it's it's to to kind of expect Him to do something that's not really in his role, you know what I mean, is, is just kind of misplaced, I think. To expect him to reveal a secret truth to you or to help you apart from the Word, yeah. it gets kind of fuzzy there. And, and I know people right now, if you're, if you're not familiar with a Reformed or confessional background, when, when we're saying Word and Sacrament, you're like, whoa, are you saying people are saved by sacrament. No, no. What we're saying is grace is administered. When baptisms happen, it's not just the person who's being baptized, but the whole body is encouraged and strengthened Mm -hmm. as they remember. And through the work of the Spirit in them, the the means of grace are encouraging them and strengthening their own faith. And and that same thing is true in the Lord's Supper. And this is is how our faith is encouraged, but it all comes and points back to Christ, where our hope is, not in our duty. The moment it becomes duty, it's moralism and it's death. Well, and the idea of duty almost kind of implies that there is some type of status before God that we're trying to achieve. And so like to strive for that and and think that that's part of sanctification, that that means you don't really understand your justification, which is that you, and we talked about that just recently, you know, that we, we are righteous before God because of Christ, because of an alien righteousness. And so sanctification happens in light of a heart that's changed and out of, out of gratitude we desire to please God, and we're made holy. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, yes, God is working in us, but we genuinely do desire to do these things now out of a heart that's gracious and out of eyes that are looking forward, fixed on Christ, knowing that one day we will be ultimately transformed into his image. And I think that's what Chris was talking about earlier. You know, uh, over in, uh, I think, Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, now the Lord is spirit, is, or the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. 
And in that passage, I mean, there's a lot going on there, but I think essentially you have God's glory being seen in us, not through a perfectionism, but through a transformation, an ongoing transformation that throughout the Christian life, as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, on the glory of the Lord, that we ourselves are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Um, I think it was Thomas Chalmers who wrote a sermon uh, a long time ago called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Yeah, he's an old dead guy. Yeah, he's one of the old dead guys. (laughs) And I, I remember reading that sermon some time ago and just being so blown away by just such a simple point that he's making in it that you can't just tell your heart not to want something, not to love something, uh, not to treasure something, that that affection of your heart, that desire of your heart has to have a new object. Right. Otherwise, you you may remove whatever that thing is for a while, but your heart is still going to want it. And, you know, and he talks about how Christ and the gospel displaces that and forces out that previous love of our heart and focuses the love of our heart upon Christ. And that that is the the, the true uh, transformation of our heart rather than just an enforced legalistic type of moralism that says, well, I just shouldn't do this. So I'm just going to white knuckle it and just not do this, even though my heart really still wants to do this. It's a matter of real sanctification being that Christ must become greater. Well, that has a has a a weird view. If someone that would say that, that's a weird view of sin and the idea that sin would just be something external that you go do. But that misses the point that yes, your sinful actions are sin, right? But you also have a wicked heart, and the 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 root of your outward sins is is a heart issue, and it's the fact that you have evil desires. And so, just behavior modification where you're like, I'm just going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop cursing. I'm going to stop looking at porn. I'm going to stop whatever you're going to stop doing. You can't just stop doing it because you need to worship something. You're going to worship something. Because you can start patting yourselves on the back. Right. Hey, I didn't look at porn this week. Right. Man, I'm, I'm really doing great. Right. And, and that's the screwed up part about legalism is that you, you have this to-do list and you start to actually think you're achieving it. Yeah. And you miss the part where Jesus says, oh, to hate your brother in your heart is to commit murder. Right. Oh, oh it's well, a heart I've thing. seen this be very damaging to churches, because if that kind of a thing is allowed to grow within the, the ideology of a body, what ends up happening is you get one group of people that are like what you're talking about, Aaron, who say, man, I'm actually pulling this off. Now, they're not pulling it off, right. <laughs> but they convince themselves that they are. And so they're walking around like they walk on water, thinking that they're actually living that life. And the thing is, what's the most dangerous about that is they they become arrogant Hmm. and self-righteous. But then you have the people that are looking at them that are going, wow, this guy's actually doing this. Why isn't my walk like that? Yeah. How come I can't be like that guy. I mean, that guy is just so holy, and man, he's just got it so together. But the so, fact is, he doesn't have it together. And Chris, what happens to that guy? He he runs the exact opposite way. Yeah. He runs into the other ditch of license because 
before you know it, he's like the younger brother. I just can't do this, right? Yeah. You've got the older brother in Luke 15 going, okay, I'm doing this. I'm slaving for you. I've earned this. The younger brother goes, I can't do that. I'm just going like to go. And, and, and what's sad, and I'm going to go after a few things. I'm probably going to get some hate mail this week, <laughs> but it's okay. Um, you know, this, this is where this became a crisis in, in evangelicalism, and specifically even in Reformed circles, when Tullian Tavijan was kind of pushing his agenda of the, the view that he had of the doctrine of grace. Mm-hmm. And that sanctification was the doctrine that was at the heart of, of what was being abused here. And, you know, it comes back to, and I love my Lutheran brothers, let me say that off back, you know, right out, right out of the gate, and, and I, I'm involved in, in helping a few that are planting churches and other things, but let me just say, part of the Lutheran doctrine is law and grace, mm-hmm. law, grace, law, gospel, law, gospel, and, and, and yet there is a place for this third use of the law that is now my relationship has changed to the law because of Christ that now I am pursuing, but the power of that comes from Christ. Right. The power yeah. comes from Christ. It's not my white knuckling and my patting myself on the back, and it's not so overwhelming that all I need is a message of grace and forgiveness. It It is that your relationship to the law entirely has changed. Yeah, yeah. going back no, to and the I would be, a, Sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, you know, I was one who... In some of the earlier teaching that uh, Tullian had put out, that I found myself seeing a lot of the stuff he was saying and going, yeah, okay. But then he would say something else along with it, and I'd be going, mm, no, but, no. But the reason, <laughs> the reason it spoke to a, a lot of us, I think, initially was because we came out of more the white knuckle. Right, the legalism. The legalism. Right. And it was refreshing to hear someone really expounding upon grace. But if you go... If you can't swerve to miss one ditch and go to the other right. ditch and think you're safe. Yeah. You, you got to walk the narrow road here, and the narrow road is Christ, Christ, Christ. And and it it's it's dangerous to go to license in in reaction against legalism, and you don't want to go the other way either. So I mean, it's just yeah. yeah. I think part of it has to going back to kind of what Chris was saying earlier about uh, the, the churches that can get damaged. That's real because you got people that are fooling themselves into thinking that they're being holy because of their, you know, outward behavior. And then you've got the other people who are kind of just sheep looking up to them saying, wow, that's what I need to aspire to be like. That That's really why Jesus's words to the Pharisees were always so harsh, because they're modeling, you know, upstanding behavior for their followers. And yet he called them whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones. You know, they're only cleaning the outside of the cup and the inside it's, it's nasty, you know? And so that's really the same issue that you see in modern day churches. You've got people that are concerned with outward appearance and 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 not that some of it, not not that they're not right about some things. Like there are some things you shouldn't do. Like there is there are outward things that we should abstain from. There are certain ways we shouldn't talk. There are certain places we shouldn't go. Certain things we shouldn't be involved in. If you just spend a few minutes reading Paul's letters, right. The back half of all his letters are filled with do, don't do, right. Avoid, right. And, and it's a constant reminder that there's action and we're to have a role in. In responsibility, yeah, there is, and then, but, and that's just not the full equation. The 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 deeper issue, and the reason why behavior gets gets out of whack, is because of the issue of the heart, and that's really what is what needs to be continually transformed a, as a Christian. It, it's it's amazing, and I, I think Paul does this, you know, at least in the scriptures, 
that that really speak to me and his stylistic of writing is he always hits the you know after you get past the introduction stuff you get to the meat of the theology yeah. he's going to make and it's always grace it's you know he goes with the guilt grace you know uh uh perspective the law gospel aspect but he always pushes it to the gratitude you know, to use the Heidelberg yeah. there. You proud of me? I use the Heidelberg. Guilt, grace, gratitude. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. <laughs> and he goes from guilt to grace and then all of a sudden pushes the gratitude. Now, out of that, live this way. Right. Out of that, do this. Yeah. But you can't get the front end of that messed up. Yeah. You know, you he get... always starts with the indicative of who Christ is and what he's done and then moves to the imperative. Right. Therefore, now walk in this way. You mess up that order and you're not preaching the gospel. Right. And that's the problem in so many evangelical churches, as the gospel truly is not being preached. Um, let's jump to, like, let's see, Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit passage, right? Because that would be the positive side of this discussion. So we've got sanctification. We've talked a lot about mortifying the flesh, right? Putting away our sinful desires. And so as far as fruit of the Spirit, I've heard people say um, that it's easy for us to get a false sense of uh, I don't know, accomplishment maybe when we look at our lives and then we read, you know, Galatians 5 and we say, okay, um, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And all those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with, with its passions and desires. And we'll see a couple things on that list, like patience or kindness. And we say, okay, well, this week I was really patient with you know, my son or my wife or my boss or whatever, and I could have been a jerk and I wasn't, so I'm doing good. And I think there's a there's a tendency to like find one or two of those things that we might have a strength in and then think that we're doing great <laughs> with with holiness and sanctification. And if, I don't know if you guys have ever encountered that before, or I think that that's something that people should try to guard against, you know, just picking out their little favorite things and saying, well, I'm good with this. So, you know. Yep. No, it's, I think it's a great point. I think we we have the tendency to say, well, it's just not my gift to be uh, gracious right, or right. gentle. I, my gift isn't gentleness. Right. Well, it should be. <laughs> right. The fruit of the Spirit is all these things. Yeah. You can't pick and choose what, what it is. I think you're, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think someone said, I, I can't remember who said it either, but someone pointed out that it is the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. So it's not like they're plural, like we can pick and choose which ones we should right. try to strive with. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears all of these things in some measure, in the life of genuine believers. And so these are all things that we need to be striving to walk in and to work toward. And there's that cooperative language, right? We are working toward it, even though we realize that the strength and the ability comes through the Holy Spirit. I, I don't want anybody to miss this, that this entire um, series we've been going through as we've been walking through this, this all works together. And I, and I know we know that cognitively, you know, in our brains, we, we get it. But, but it truly does. One of the topics we hit was the providence of God. And the providence of God, we said that Romans eight twenty eight, right? All things work together for good. Mm -hmm. There's a qualifier to that, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, i.e. the church. Right. The non-church, the non-believer, we can't say all things are going to work together for good. It might work to their hardening. It, it might work uh, to their judgment. But to the believer, to the church, we know that all things work to our good. Part of our good, all the hardships, all the difficulties, the, the crooked lot that um, is described um, in Ecclesiastes 7, that crooked lot that we're constantly using our own strength to try to straighten, all of those difficulties in life are for our good. Mm -hmm. Let me put it a different way. They're for our sanctification. Right. They're yeah. for our holiness. Yeah. 
And and yeah. we have to remember that, you know, especially in the in the in the difficult times. Life is going to be crooked. Life is going to be difficult. And you can try to exert all your energy trying to straighten it out, or you can understand that this vice that you're feeling the pressure in, this pressure cooker is actually a gift from God to produce in you the holiness that he has desired. Yeah. I'm, all right. I'm going to do it again. Are you guys ready? I'm going to talk about Job. There but you go. What, what, <laughs> isn't that part of the reason? I mean, he's, he's, a, he's described as a righteous man, and yet he suffers terribly. Isn't that why, in order to sanctify him and for, the, for God to teach him to look at God as sovereign, as creator, as someone who is holy and doesn't answer to anybody? You know, like, that's part of Job's sanctification, to learn those things about God. And God yeah. shows a from our perspective, a severe means to teach him that lesson. Um, but that that's for Job's good, ultimately. And that's what we're talking about with Romans 8, 28. It's ultimately for his good. Yeah. Again, in this uh, Westminster Confession, it actually describes what's going on in sanctification. It says uh, it's, it's a continual war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love that. It's a continual war. Wars aren't pretty. Wars are messy. Uh, wars are bloody. Uh, wars hurt, um, they're painful, and that's what sanctification is. But it goes on to say, um, in actually section one, it says, which without which no man will see the Lord. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you just touched on right there what I actually wanted to get to, and that is the necessity of sanctification. Yeah. Um, you know, when we talk about sanctification, I was thinking earlier that uh, it's been said that sanctification is becoming what you already are. And that is that we have been declared righteous, and we are becoming what we already have been declared to be. But there's another aspect of that, too, and that is that in Christ, we're told that we are made new creation, that we are part of, that we belong to the new creation order that is coming. Christ, the first fruits, uh, and we in Christ, part of that as well. We are made new creation. And so... As God's redemptive drama continues to move forward, we are continually being renewed in his likeness and becoming more and more what we already are. Um, I guess we could say that our already is becoming more and more the not yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but with that, there's this other issue of the necessity of sanctification. There have been some doctrines that have floated around evangelicalism for the last, oh, decade or so, which would say that uh, really all that's required for salvation is just an intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel, and that there doesn't have to be any actual transformation, that there may not be any sanctification in someone's life, and yet that person may still be saved uh, and what do you guys think about that? I mean, I look at that and just say, uh, I don't see that kind of teaching in Scripture anywhere. No, I, I think that comes from the way evangelicals have embraced once saved, always saved, yeah, mm-hmm. and have missed the deeper doctrine, which is the perseverance of the saints. Right. That the, these saints will persevere. There has to be growth, not because we're saved, as you already said, Zach, we're not saved by what we do, but it is definitely the fruit of what we do. Uh, uh a good tree right. may bear some bad fruit, but it will produce some good fruit. Yeah. Otherwise, you can't call it a good tree. <laughs> right. Yeah. A, a, a bad tree will produce 
you know, a, or let me say it, not even a bad tree. A dead tree will produce no fruit, right? <laughs> no, no good fruit. Excuse me. And and you say, well, well, let's look at that. The heart of it is, we never even know an individual's uh, reason they're doing what they're doing. Well, this guy helps this little old lady across the street every day. We don't know why he's doing that, right? And it says the heart is desperately wicked. You know, I can't, and I'm not going to sit here and judge everybody's motives. It's not my job. My job is to first worry about the log in my own eye, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, rather than worrying about Zach's, uh, the Zach's toothpick in his eye. <laughs> but, but there needs to be growth. Yeah. And if there's not growth, you have serious reason to go back and evaluate. Hence why the Bible is called a mirror, so we can reflect and, and see where we stand. That is a dangerous, dangerous uh, teaching. Uh, when when people simply state once saved always saved. Well, and and I think when you get down to it, you're probably not going to find many pastors or or disciple makers or mentors or however you want to characterize that. You're not going to find many uh, teachers that are counseling in that way. And when someone is going off and living in some kind of horrendous sin, but they're a professing believer, the pastor's not going to say, "Well, you know what? You prayed a prayer one day, so you're probably good, so you're fine." Like they're going to say, "No." I'm worried for your soul because of how you're acting. And they're not preaching a work salvation to that person. They're saying, you you are not bearing fruit, so I don't have any reason to assume that you are genuinely a Christian at this point. Gentlemen, can I, can I as, a, as a pastor, I would say, is this not why we have church discipline? Yeah. Yep. I was just thinking the same thing. The goal of church discipline isn't to be mean. The goal of church discipline is what? Repentance. Right, to restore. To restore. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, we, we have, we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. In, in Matthew 18, we've been given a process to follow to see reconciliation happen. And when that is not followed by churches, which, let's be honest, it's not followed <laughs> by many churches— right. That's when sin begins to blossom and grow. In in a in a just a little bit of time, I'm going to be at, I'm going to be speaking at a conference about revitalization. It's it's a conference that's on uh, revival, and they're asking me to talk about revitalization. Well, one of the things I'm doing, I'm using First Corinthians as a case study. You look at First Corinthians, all the sin, divisions, right. sexual um, uh, immorality, uh, idolatry. Uh, there's there's issues with their theology, uh, resurrection, communion, all these things. But it really stems from one thing: they have too big a view of themselves, and not a big enough view of God. And yeah. it's it's an and issue it, of pride and humility. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, and it seems like in First Corinthians that they actually thought that, wow, we're doing a great—look at how gracious we are that we allow this guy who is in an improper relationship with his father's wife, uh, that we even have this guy here in our service. Look at how gracious we are here. And Paul says, no! (laughs) Right. (laughs) What is going on? And, uh, you know, I think that that's almost a little bit of the way things sometimes end up getting treated is— we, we almost uh, sometimes within evangelicalism, people be patting themselves on the back going, wow, look at how gracious we are, you know, with this kind of stuff going on. And Paul would say, no, you need to remove that person from among you. Um, they need to be brought to a place of repentance and hopefully restored right. into fellowship. And it does seem like from Second Corinthians that that actually was the case. Um with even maybe a hint that at that point they swung the other direction and we're kind of like, well, now we're not sure we want to let this guy back into the fellowship. But then Paul has to tell him, no, you know, when this has happened, if the person is repentant, uh, restore them into 
fellowship. Let me um, let me take that a step further, Chris, because there's a there's an article that was interestingly uh, released not too long ago. It was a story of First Presbyterian Church in uh, Mississippi. Not Trenton, Michigan. Not Trenton, Michigan. Not, <laughs> not, not to be Trenton, confused. Michigan. Not to be confused. <laughs> but this is this is a stem of what I really truly believe that we're talking about individual Christians through the doctrine of sanctification and their need to repent because repentance without repentance there's no assurance that you're saved. Right. right? Well, the church is made up of believers and. I believe truly that churches need to repent. There's, there's, uh, maybe you've allowed bad doctrine in your church. Maybe you've allowed uh, um, un- unconfessed sins just to go on and on. And and now um, years later, it's just you're you're reaping the crop of this. No wonder churches are dying at a huge rate. The Baptists have done us a great favor, and they're doing a lot of research on revitalization right now. And I get a lot of my stats from what the SBC and others are putting together, and I'm I'm just blown away by the the amount of churches that are dying. Well, why are they dying? The gospel's not being preached because people aren't being called to repentance, mm-hmm. and, 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 and church discipline isn't being practiced. Well, this example that I'm going to give is from First, uh, from, uh, First Presbyterian Church in, in, in Mississippi, and it was during the 1960s. They actually, or in the late 1850s, they made a rule that no black person was allowed in the church. They actually had their ushers um, notified that if anybody showed up, they were to be exited. And and this church was slowly dying, and multiple things happened. You remember the Freedom Riders who would come on uh, school buses? There was a, a big blow-up. They did not open their church doors as a sanctuary for these people, and literally it was happening on the corner across the street from the church. And uh, then there was a, a minister who came, or a, a, I think it was for like a Memorial Day service or something, and they had somebody uh, who, who they called the Navy to have somebody come speak, and a chaplain came. It happened to be, he happened to be black, and a bunch of people were in you know, uproar of this. The church kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and the church tried all these pragmatic matter, matter, measures to revitalize. They, and, I, and I counted like over 30 years they kept trying to revitalize. And every time it was a failure. They tried everything from like preschools to you name it, right? Yeah. 1980, they're still worried about their preschool. What if what if a black person comes and wants to put their kid in the preschool to show? This wasn't just junk that was going on in the 60s. Wow. This is going on in the 80s. I'm going to fast forward all the way to 2000s, and a new pastor comes in, and he realizes this is a root sin. Yeah. It's an unconfessed sin. A lot of the people who were there now weren't part of the past, but as a church, they were known in the community. Oh, that's the church that doesn't let black people in. Right. They needed to repent. <laughs> they needed to come publicly and say, this needs to change. I'm using this as a case study to say, guys, no wonder there's death. No wonder there there's, there's churches that are falling apart. Church discipline has been given to us to review. We all need to hold that mirror up. I'm a revitalizer. I believe churches need to repent. We all have tendencies, and and we're comfortable, as you were saying earlier, Chris, with uh, Zach, with, with certain sins. Mm-hmm. You know, and, well, I, I'm okay here, but maybe I'll work on this. But we ignore things, and we need to be seriously probing into how do we match up against God's word. So I'm I'm just throwing that all out there to say this doctrine of sanctification is much bigger than we think it is. Yeah. It affects whole churches, and yeah. when you let unresolved sin be dealt not be dealt with or unresolved sin to just kind of settle, your generations are going to reap from that crop. Yeah. 
I, I silenced the crowd. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's okay. Didn't mean to do that. I just I'm passionate about that because I'm passionate about revitalization. Yeah. And when I saw this story, it really spoke to me, and it definitely goes with what we're talking about because I think we cannot disassociate the fact that individual Christians are members of churches, mm-hmm. and this all goes together. Yeah. And I think it comes down also to if in our culture we're trying to grow a church, you know, we want more people, and with that ends up coming in inevitably a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, the fear of man. And the next thing you know, certain elements of our preaching are being removed, and their confrontation from the Word of God has to go. Um, everything has to be softened. We have to pull all the punches because we don't want people offended. We don't want people to not like us. And the next thing you know, we're dealing with all kinds of sin issues in the church, and we're wondering, how come this isn't getting better? Uh, Well, here's a real good (laughs) place to start, is we're no longer calling people to repentance. We're no longer proclaiming God's Word in its fullness and in its power and trusting the Spirit of God to convict people in the church and to convict whole churches like you were talking about, Aaron, uh, and to bring us to that place where we are repentant and growing in Christ-likeness. But rather than repentance, what do we do as churches? We attach the newest idea from the latest book. Yeah. We try to apply pragmatic measures to produce numbers and, and show that we're truly alive. It's the exact same thing individuals do when they feel and they know they're not growing. They start to come up with all of these things they can begin to apply. Um, and, and let's be honest, apart from the Word of God, apart from the sacraments He's provided— Apart from prayer, <laughs> you're just grasping at straws, hoping that something will work when he's, pro- he's provided something he says will work. It's going to work for your good, and, and it's focused in Christ, and it's where real nourishment is so that you can grow and have victory and be changed. And that's, that's what we as pastors need to be about. That's what we yeah. as teachers need to be reminding the people. Don't just look for the latest trend or, or oh, you know, this, this, this book helped me. Here, read it. Push people to the Word. Push yeah. them to go and, and, and make sure they're faithfully participating in the life of the church. Well, that connects with what Chris said, because he's talking about when churches get really, really pragmatic and they want to implement uh, new methods and they're, and they're not, they're pulling all the punches, you know? And they're softening all the all the harsh parts of scripture or whatever. And sometimes it, it might initially start from a place that is kind of good, like where you're trying not to push people away, and like that's good to feel that way. But you're actually doing them more damage by not giving them the means by which they can be sanctified. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. if you're worried about offending someone because you don't want to cause a mess, you don't want to cause division in your church. Like, well, that's a good desire that you don't want division in your church, but you're actually going to cause more damage down the road by not giving them the means by which they can uh, learn about Christ and actually grow in holiness if you're pulling all the punches from all the, all the ugly verses you don't like, you know? You know what I've found just personally in my time uh, in the pulpit has been that believers really do appreciate it. You know, I've actually had people who have told me, you know, at, at times, you know, man, you, you hurt my feelings up there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, see you next week. 
Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, they want to be confronted. And I think a lot of times it's kind of like the thing with our, our kids. And they say with teenagers that, you know, teenagers are always rebelling against their parents. And, you know, they're frustrated that we put up kind of borders around them and, and say, you have to be home by this time. And, you know, I don't want you going here and I don't want you hanging out with those people. And I want you to take care of these chores and that kind of thing. And teenagers will act very frustrated about that. But what studies have found is that when parents don't do that and just say to their kids, oh, yeah, do whatever you want, go wherever you want with whoever you want, that subconsciously what that communicates to that young person is my parents don't love me. Right. They don't care about me. Because they know if they did care about me, then they would be setting up these different standards and kind of walls around me for my own good and my own protection. And so I think from the pulpit, if we neglect to ever do that, uh, it does have a detrimental effect upon people. And if we want to truly love people, we need to give them the truth and its full strength. The book of Ezekiel deals with uh, the wicked shepherds, and the wicked shepherds are those shepherds that are more focused on themselves yeah. than the sheep. And heaven forbid that that be said of any of us, that we are um, placed in the positions we've been placed to be teachers of the Word of God, that we would ever value our own comfort above the needs of the sheep and which means there's times as a leader it's uncomfortable yeah. to have hard conversations yeah. with people but we want to lead them to the path of righteousness we want to point them to Christ we want to give them real hope yeah and just patting them on the back and saying hey brother I'm praying for you isn't enough i mean I, i'm not trying to minimize prayer prayer is but but having hard conversations is what we're called to do and sanctification is a war guys it is a war and and if you're in the ministry if you have aspirations of ministry this is where things get hot yeah yeah i, I mean i would rather have someone not talk to me for a year because they're mad that i gave them a hard truth than to have someone yeah. uh have some shallow level friendship that's buddy buddy but we never talk about the fact that you know one of us is having a serious sin problem you know but that's not a, really a true friend in any sense of the word and for fear that there's somebody out there right now going, yes, they're speaking my language. I am going to arm my guns, and yeah. I'm going to go into church tomorrow. <laughs> Speak truth in love, right? grace, yeah. and truth. <laughs> Repeatedly, that message is given, so I hope I disarm you somewhat. Yeah, the truth itself is offensive. You don't have to add to that by being a jerk about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can speak calmly, but if you, if you just cracked open the Bible and read, it would be offensive. So you don't need to add to it with an attitude, definitely not. Well, fellas, as we wrap up here, we've, we've, we've really uh, spent a lot of time talking about sanctification. I can tell we're all passionate about it. Um, is there anything you want to say, kind of given a last holler out on a, a specific issue maybe we haven't hit yet? Well, you guys already mentioned a couple books. Um, there's a couple that I was thinking of, uh, specifically in the area of mortification, that have been instrumental in my life. And then one of them, I actually read them probably in the reverse order that most people would suggest to read them, but I read John Owen first. And then I read Chris Lungard, which is like the easy version. And and it's really it's the Chris Lungard. His, his book is called The Enemy Within. Um, super good book. It's super valuable. And if you read, if you're not a reader, that's the one to to read. Um, if you hate reading, you're you're not gonna 
like John Owen. <laughs> Because uh, yeah. I, I love reading and it's hard to read John Owen, but I read, he, there's a big uh, volume. It's got like three books within it. And it's, I think, I, I don't know if Crossway puts it out, but it's called uh, Overcoming Sin and Temptation is the name of the volume. And then there's three separate books by John Owen. And I've read uh, Of Mortification of Sin and Believers. Super hard read. But man, if you really like try to meditate on what he's saying in there, because you're going to have to read it 10 times to discern what he's saying. Uh, but that book has been invaluable in my own life. So both of those... Um, and if you're not up for the task, then the Chris Lungard book is going to do just fine as well. I was going to say, John Owen's work, uh, I think, is just excellent. I would definitely try to stick with the abridged version. Yeah. Because I think he does write at like a 110th grade reading level. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's pretty intense. But uh, yeah, I think Mortification of Sin is just uh, an epic classic in the area of sanctification. And, uh, you know, another that I, I think was very influential to me in this area was Desiring God by John Piper. Um, and all of the people that have issues with the term Christian hedonism, you know, chill out, relax. <laughs> uh, you know, just the issue of the supremacy of Christ in all things, uh, finding your joy in Christ, that your affections for him would supersede your affections for for any worldly pleasure i I just see that as such a sanctifying work in in my own life and so that was a real blessing to me also well guys i uh, had a lot of fun on this one and uh hopefully our listeners enjoy it and we're expecting to get some feedback for the things we said that you hate (laughs) so don't be shy chris loves to get those uh emails and text messages and he's our filter so and once again that racist church was not first pres trenton it was not just to... <laughs> thanks zach just Every... co- covering your tracks just to make sure everybody have a great week and uh we'll catch you next week thanks for listening to the confessional collective podcast for more information and resources please visit professionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook.